This Rock Talk podcast recording is an interview and opinion product that is the property of rocksubculture.com, all rights reserved. Rocksubculture.com is not responsible for any statements or opinions expressed by the guests of this programme. Welcome to Rock Talk, the official podcast for rocksubculture.com. Each podcast features interviews with special guests to discuss all aspects of popular music. Rocksubculture.com travels the globe to experience, review and archive live concert events. Interview those involved in producing and performing a variety of genres of popular rock music as well as find and learn about related studio and stage-used artifacts and memorabilia. Now, let's join our host, Jason DeBoard. So, all right. So anyway, that's the reason why I don't like to... to uh, Interviews, but then when we're performing at a place, the interview helps letting the people know that you're there, right? And things like that, because of the the fact is is that you know money makes money, yeah, and 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 venues, unless there's the things like we you know we do in Las Vegas. Like Viva Las Vegas to thirty thousand people. Right. And you know, I'm playing with Kid Rock with thirty thousand people. Um they spend the money to advertise. Right. You know, I'm, on, I'm on the billboards, I'm on the flashy screens. Whereas just just a venue that holds four hundred people, six hundred people, they don't spend the money. Yeah. They you know, they, they put out a little bit of flyers and 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 they try to do something over the computer, web, you know, you know, it just that doesn't work. Yeah, promotion. Yeah, promotion is everything because I've gone to shows where you know there's no one there because no one knew about it, not because the artist isn't great, you know. Yeah, I mean, I was in Florida at, at, a, at a theater, playing at a, a theater that we played there all the time, and it, the, the place fills up nicely, but it doesn't get sold out and. When I walk out front, I don't see anything saying Dick Dale. Or this guy comes up to me, Dick. I didn't know you played there last night. <laughs> I live, I live, I live one block away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then they blame you because it wasn't sold out. Right. And but then I'll play at a place 18 minutes apart from the other place. And uh, and and they go, you know, you're gonna be two uh, two hours away. Hell, this was 18 minutes apart from two venues, and the tickets were fifty dollars a ticket, and they sold out like two weeks in advance, three weeks in advance. Right. And I mean, this is, you know, because they they promoted it like crazy. One had a a big sign that was uh, going both ways, and you know what's funny? You'll see venues have your name on a sign. Well. But it's only on the oncoming traffic. <laughs> well, well, what about the other traffic that went by? Right. Know, that's on the other lane. 
and they've got other groups, you know, on right. the other side. <laughs> Where the hell is the, the mentality in that? <laughs> you know, I, I've learned all those mistakes because I built the two largest clubs in Southern California and, and, <clears throat> and, and mine were like 30,000 square feet. And, and I had, you know, 60 foot stages and, and I lost a hundred thousand in one week. Just, just, uh, advertising the wrong way. Right. And, until I learned how to do it. <laughs> so, you know, that's, you know, I tell everybody, you know, everyone has, uh, uh, intelligence. You know, monkeys have intelligence. They'll use a ladder <laughs> to climb. I know I've, I've had them, you know, they'll use a ladder to climb up a tree and get a banana. Whereas, um, uh, intelligence becomes your worst enemy because you're using a screw balloon tattoo going down your intelligent ideas. And, uh, so what controls intelligence? Uh, one word. It's called wisdom. Right. And, and where does wisdom come from? It comes from age and making mistakes and you having enough brains to learn from it. Right. If <laughs> some people don't, they keep making the same <laughs> mistake. You know? Yeah. Well, I, I guess with as long as you've been in the music industry, you could probably do everybody's job at this point, right? I, I, I've been there and done that, and that's <laughs> the reason why I back away, because there, there is no, there is no answer when it comes to, even in, in the world of government, mm-hmm. that it's, it, everything is run by greed. And the people who have the greed destroy the poor working class of people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's the whole problem. And, and, and it's gotten so bad because who pulls the strings are the ones who have paid off others to, to uh, uh, play the tape, the movie of Howard Hughes. Mm-hmm. And you will see the total, total way of the way one person can control so many people. Right. And, and every, everywhere from the mafia, from the government to everywhere, the presidents and everybody. And it's all like who pays off who? Right. Who does, who does the favor for who? Yeah. You know, and the poor guy, I remember, Sonny Bono and Cher, Sonny and Cher, when they got started, they were sleeping in a car, and George, George Barris was kind enough to let them sleep in his parking lot, and George Barris was one of the greatest car designers, and <clears throat> God bless them, and they they started, he gave them their break, where to live, <laughs> and, and, you know, how to survive, and and they became what they became. They would come to my recording sessions and sit down and, and they were just really, really good people until the industry screwed with their brains. And, and, and that's what happens. And then, well, and I helped them run for office one time and, and he told me, Dick, he says, if I can't make a difference, I'm getting out. Mm-hmm. And he got in. And he wasn't in six months and he told me, he said, the minute I got in, it became to, to make deals 
And they said, you better vote the way we vote because we want to go fishing. Otherwise, we're going to stonewall you. We'll stonewall you. And, you know, and he said that's what he was up against. Right. And, and, and the, the true, truthful, like Mr. So-and-so goes to Washington. <laughs> uh, you know, the true, there is no true legal, uh, what, it, what would you call it? Honesty. Mm-hmm. The honesty is gone. And, and it's gone because of politics. Right. And, you know. When you're running for office, you know, you if you don't have the money, how are you going to get your name on television? Right. They paid, like, I remember, like, three point something million dollars one time to do 60 seconds of a Dick Dale ad. And, and I think it was during the Super Bowl game. Right. And they didn't pay me that. <laughs> you know, it, but that was their cost, right? You know, to put it out there. So why, you know, uh, why would they do that? Because billions, millions, and millions of people are watching the TV of the Super Bowl game, right? And that's how they're going to sell their product. Yeah. So, so you know, that's what it's all about. And and these kids today don't realize that that's what it is. But there's a whole new sequence going on. And the sequence is that uh, I, it was in the old days of Randolph Scott. He was the cowboy. Mm-hmm. And he took it upon himself to take over his own because he had made enough money. So he took over and he made his own records and sold his own records. And he controlled the royalties and everything else like that. Mm-hmm. And that's how he became what he became. Now, the kids, you know, the reason why the big companies, you know, the big agencies that control the audiences of the 100,000 people for concerts, these are the guys that control the entertainers. Mm-hmm. So unless you signed in with them, and then Lord knows how much they're taking from the entertainer. Right. See? And there's books two inches thick of every famous rock and roll band you've ever heard talking about how they were screwed, blued, and tattooed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that's true. Yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> so now what's going on is so when I get it, every time I get awarded, a, an achievement award. Uh-huh. They, I always they ask me to say some words, <laughs> and I tell <laughs> the kids sitting there, "Don't sign with any major companies, right? Because because they're going to take away all your copyrights, everything of your songs, because that's where they make their money. And what you're going to get is nothing. That sell the, the record will sell four million records. Uh, I, uh, Tom Jones." Did over so many million records, and he got seventy five hundred dollars at one time. Mm-hmm. Timmy Timmy Euro of the Great Hurt, that song sold millions. She never received a dime. So you know, and then when they say, "Well, you know, our record's selling a million records. What's our uh, the dollar a record, uh, fifty cents a record you promised us right. at that time?" And they say, "Oh no, we got you signed for the next five years, and you've got to record five more albums." And it costs all this money to record. So, you know, 
we have to spend all that money. Right. Say what I'm saying? Yeah. So it, it's such a, a conglomeration. But now the kids that are really intelligent with the computers, they're going on their own. And they're doing it things like on, on these different websites about their recordings that they're making themselves. And the people like pay a dollar and play the record. Right. Well, they're making 10 times as much as they would have if they signed with a record company. Yeah. But the people who get into the drugs and the booze and the all that other kind of stuff, they only see stardom where they say, we'll put you in uh, a bus, a uh, big, beautiful bus and, and all <laughs> this fancy stuff and take you here and there and do all this stuff. They don't realize that they're paying for all of that. Right. Out of the so-called royalties. Right. So, and then you say, well, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. How are you <laughs> going to be seen if you don't pay so many thousand? I was in, I, there was a company that was endorsing me. They were paying $16,000 a month for six months just for a full 8 by 10 page in the middle of the magazine. <laughs> you know, not the cover. Can you imagine <laughs> what you'd be paying for the cover? Yeah. <laughs> or the back? You see what I mean? Yeah. So, and then, then you spread out to the world of, say, the magazine companies. They go out and make a record, uh, a magazine, and they gotta sell it, right? Right. Well, I, I wrote a, I wrote an article, it was a two-page article I wrote for about six months for, uh, an ag a magazine that was beautiful. It was glossy, the glossy pages. It was incredible. And it was a spoof on, uh, at the entertainment world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I wrote all about my travels and I, I had a little bit of penicillin in it too. I would <laughs> you know, talk about things that I experienced by meeting certain people. And, and, and then, you know, I put the knife in and then I, Pulled it out and healed it, you know, like I didn't, I didn't make it sound like I was a preacher. I just, I made it sound like this is what happened to my, like the pickers on TV, you know, right. you, go up, you know, I just said, this is what I came up against when I saw this stuff. <laughs> and then I helped them about what to expect when they're playing in a venue, what they should get, what they can't get and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, that was the, my, this thing was a two page article. And the title of it was Dick Dale's Pissed On and Pissed Off. <laughs> I'm pissed off of being pissed on. And, and, and that was just raging everywhere. All over the world. All over the world. Egypt, everywhere. South America. And, and what happened was the poor kids that start, the people that started, they we're going to try, they're going to try to make a TV show out of it. And have me on it as that. And, um, they just were losing money and losing money. Why? Because they couldn't get shelf space. Mm. And you pay for shelf space in these, these markets. People yeah. don't know that. People don't realize that that market makes so much money from the companies that make the goods. The canned goods, the, the bakery stuff, everything. 
to where it's placed on the shelf. Yeah. And people don't know that. I've seen it. I actually used to work for Procter & Gamble when I was in college. So I remember that. <laughs> the kid, Procter & Gamble. Yeah. Sure. And, and they have to pay for the shelf space. So what happened was, the, it, it was all full, and they would shove the magazines underneath on the bottom floor. <laughs> and the kids, the poor kids, they had to stop the company. Uh, but they they were paying me eight hundred dollars for every article that I wrote. Wow! And and they loved it. And and I had my own two page article, <laughs> and by telling it like it is. Yeah. So if you were in your early twenties and you were getting started in music today, how would you go about doing it? I would. I would. Uh, first of all, I would find someone that knows how to create uh, uh, the workage of the the from the from the uh, mixings of the YouTubes, uh, all that kind of all these kids they tell me what I'm playing with their iPhone mm-hmm. and it's on YouTube. Go on go on YouTube and hit Big Dale and look what happens. There's ten thousand <laughs> Of those things in there, what I'm doing, right? And am I am I making any money from that? No, but what it would be then saying, well, you know, let's go see Big Dale when he comes to a concert. We want to see him live, mm-hmm. even though we're watching him live, right? So there, are, that that can help. It keeps the, you you in the eyes of those people. Like when I go to Spain, they put me on the cover. Um, you know, forget Big Joe King the Surf Guitar, and they call me Father of Heavy Metal. Right. And because I created the heavy gauge strings, the amplifiers, the, the transformers, Leo Fender, the first 15 inch speakers, uh, all of that stuff, we made the breakthrough. We split the atom when it came to that, and I was the first. Mm-hmm. And that, and you know, that's fact. Right. And, and, and because I'm still playing through the same stuff. <laughs> that I made, that we created. Yeah. Now, over in Spain, they got me uh, uh, on the on the cover of their heavy metal magazine. <laughs> and, you know, and stuff like that. So, people see that and they go, oh, that's Dick Dale, he's on the cover. So, that really helps you. But what I'm trying to say, to get to that point, you have to make yourself known and how do you do that mm-hmm. well you, you do that by advertising how many times have you seen a band on the cover of a very famous uh i don't want to say their name anymore because every time i say their name they crucify <laughs> me so <laughs> so so i'm just going to say the most the most famous rock and roll magazine that's mm-hmm. out there. Okay. You see this band that's on the cover. And you never heard of them in your life. Right. Why? So why are they on the cover? Gee, duh. <laughs> why do you think they're on the cover? It's not too different from politics, right? Did somebody pay $100,000 to say, I want the cover? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And and that's what that's what it is. And those people are the ones who have signed this group, and this group is going to bleed to death <laughs> because of what this, these people that signed them, the company that signed them, 
they're going to want their money back. Right. Just like there was a, a, a warp tour. It cost me $10,000 out of my own pocket to go and play about four of the things on the warp tour hmm. because I, I pay my men very well. Right. And, and, and all my expenses and everything else like that. And the pay on a scale of one to ten, what a legend got paid, is about four. Mm-hmm. And 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 so what are these other kids doing? They're playing free, right? To get the to get the exposure of thirty thousand people, right? And and then the other ones that are signed with a company, they're getting paid. The company will say, okay. And, and they say the Warp Tour will pay them about six hundred bucks, but they should be getting three thousand dollars. Right. Well, the record company gives them the three thousand dollars, but gee, guess what happens? They got to pay that three thousand dollars back. Right. But they say, well, no, because of their royalties. Right. So, but the Warp Tour gives them the exposure. For 30,000 people to see them playing. Right. And they're going to want to go and buy their records. And that's how you promote them. Right. But so you say, how do you do it today? Well, I said, go into what, how everything is moved in. You know, how a computer turns around and changes its system <laughs> and so that you're going to keep on buying new applications because the right. applications that <laughs> they want. I mean, right now I can't use FileMaker in my, my brand new iMac. <laughs> You know, and, and all my information, and it's a good thing I kept the old computer. Right. You know, so and so what happened is, and, and it's funny, when I started, the computer that I started with with the Apple, and they used to run all the birds and singers and everything from underground uh, in Disneyland. Mm-hmm. with all them in computerization, and that's how I got started. But my first computer was a 48K. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's floppy disk. Yeah. <laughs> you can flip it around and you stick it in and the, the letters come out in green <laughs> on a black screen. But that, and then I got really big time and I got a 64K. <laughs> so, so, and I still have, then, then we got the little baby tower that was made, you know, the little cream one. Right. And with the, like a five inch screen. And, <laughs> and I still got that. But yeah. anyway, but the thing is, Things keep, the evolution keeps on going. So now I would tell kids, you're so intelligent. Oh, yeah, you're intelligent. You're going down these different roads and finding out what to do. That when it comes to the computer, find out how they're making money off the computer with their talent and how they get in the world to see and know. Look at the facts of, of so many kids have created programs and they've sold them for a million dollars. Right. And, and, and look at the facts of kids that are starting in just music and they're getting themselves seen and they're getting a million hits. Mm-hmm. And so, my Lord, using your brain, uh, you find out how you can charge the money, say a dollar a play. You know, mm-hmm. you want to you want to hear the rest of this, and and how to do that. 
I never got into that. And I think it's about time for me because of my medical problems. I, I have to raise $3,000 every month. Just, this is not to pay, not to pay insurance. Mm-hmm. It's not to pay my medical stuff. It's to pay just for the supplies that I need to attach to my stomach. Mm-hmm. And, and without and, and changing it every day instead of once a week like the hospitals tell you to do. Right. And the poor hospitals, the government has closed down one quarter of the hospitals throughout the United States. Mm-hmm. And and taken away their funding that they get, where they've had to let go of all the people that have been working there for twenty and thirty years and bringing people from the uh, other lands that are just teenagers, and they keep one person that knows what they're doing. Right. And I know this for facts, because I've been through it in the hospital. And when I go back, I didn't recognize anybody. Right. Except one person. And that's because what what the the system has allowed it to do. Right. So, you know, we have to be smart enough. And so I got to keep on working. Because I cannot stay home and and build a boat in the bottle like I would like to do, you <laughs> right. know, or, or make a model airplane, and you know, and 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 you know, I can't just sit down and I've always wanted to learn how to airbrush. Right. And but and my wife, God bless her, Lana, she loves tools like I do, mm-hmm. and she bought me a, a table a table saw for Christmas. <laughs> and, you know, and stuff like that and got me the number one airbrushing. She always tried to get me the best and, and got me in uh, number one airbrushing uh, nozzles and, uh, in the book. <laughs> read the book, read the book, stupid. But that was so funny. When I read the book, how to play an ukulele when I first bought it, it didn't say, you're left-handed, stupid, turn it around. <laughs> I couldn't figure out why the fingers wouldn't go where the notes were. <laughs> and so anyway, but the thing is, is that tell these kids to really study and become brilliant about how to utilize the computerized system and the programs and find out how the other ones are doing it and how they're making money doing it. And that way you can revolutionize the world of recording and, and, and do it all through the computerization that the people say, Oh, wow, who are these people? Wow. I like their song. Right. And then, and then they'll, they'll buy it. They'll, they'll spend the dollar to, to play it. And I mean, Jesus, what happens if, uh, uh, you get a million hits and they, and they pay a dollar to, to hear it. You got a million bucks. Yeah, so basically the the key you think is self-promotion through leveraging the technology available to people yes, today. Yes, yes, because then when you start getting that kind of money, you know, from there, mm-hmm. then you take that money and you can put it on these the covers of these magazines. You can buy these ads. Right. You can buy a, a billboard for uh if you can get them from three, from $3,500 to $7,500 and, and, uh, from, for a month. 
and um, and put your face on the billboard so a million people driving on the highway sees you. Mm-hmm. Now, now buyers that are in the casinos and that have the big, uh, you know, the rooms that they want to play, they're seeing your picture up there. And you know, there was a wonderful movie, and I forget the name of it. Lana knows she's got a, a dictionary brain of every movie that has ever been made from the directors and everybody. She was into that as a child, and there was a movie done about a woman who always wanted to have her face on a billboard. And she she wasn't a talent. She didn't play an instrument. She didn't do anything. She just wanted her face on a billboard. <laughs> and 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 what it was was so she was able somehow to get this one billboard put up right in the middle of the square, the main town where all the cars would be driving by. But this other company had a monopoly on billboards, but because they didn't pay attention to the contracts, like every six months, you know, for the billboards, this one slipped by and she was able to get it. So they had her picture up there and her name and everything. And everybody said, who is she? Who is she? Who is she? Who is she? <laughs> and, and, and the other companies got all upset. Because they didn't get that billboard, which was the number one billboard, because they were so uh, uppity uppity, thinking that they could control everything, they didn't pay attention to when it, it expired. <laughs> and she got it. So now they go to her and they try to get it from her. And so she started making deals with them. She go, "Well, what are the billboards can you give me?" And like she said, "Give me two billboards. Give me three billboards." <laughs> Should happen to uh, you. The movie was is called what, honey? It should happen to you. It could happen to it you. It should happen to you. Yeah, Lana. And that's just, Judy Holiday and Jack Lemon. Judy Holiday <laughs> and Jack Lemon. Okay. And it's it's called It Could Happen to You. And she ended up, oh my God, having the number one bill. Uh, uh, she took all the other billboards that they offered her. <laughs> they would offer her like five billboards, you know. If she would give up that number one billboard. And <laughs> then she became so famous. She wrote her own ticket. In right. You know what I'm saying? So the same thing is in a magazine, once you make your money from using the computer, you can take that and put your face on the cover. Don't put, don't put write-ups in the, in a magazine. Mm-hmm. For instance, when they want to, uh, when they want to interview me, uh, and my, my wife, Lana, she runs everything now. She doesn't want me to do anything because she's worried I'm going to drop dead. <laughs> so anyway, she says, and she's got MS herself. Right. And she, she's fighting pain. And we use no drugs, no pain pills. We've never had alcohol in our bodies. We don't smoke. And that's just the way how we can do this. Right. right? Keep, keep on doing what, going through the pain that we do. She's in pain 24 hours a day. But she keeps moving and she's booking and calling all these people that are, will not, don't even have the decency to call her back. Right. If somebody calls, if somebody calls Lana, she'll call her right back. Yeah. <laughs> all these people were not raised properly. Right. They don't have the, they don't have, they don't have the manners. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's why it's so important for people to learn how to do things on their own. Right. And so what did you say? 
Oh, she does it because <laughs> I'm the love of her life. She yeah, that's it. awesome. <laughs> well, she's the love. She's the love of my life. And I'll tell you this: I never loved anybody except animals and little children, mm -hmm. because the others never loved me. Yeah, they were all. They were always along for the ride. Right. And every entertainer, from Jimi Hendrix to everybody, and I found Jimi when he was playing bass a little Richard in a bar to 30 people in Pasadena. And, and, and in fact, Buddy Miles, I used to hire him to play in my uh, nightclub. And Buddy, he, he was the drummer for Jimmy and he used to, uh, uh, open for me also. Mm -hmm. And he would, he would tell the audience before I got on stage, he'd say, I gotta tell you something, folks. He said, Jimmy used to say I got my best shit from Dick Dale. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, because, but, uh, he couldn't play like I played. I'm left-handed. And, and I just took a right-handed guitar and just flipped it upside down. Yeah. And that, that's where Leo Fender and I became like his, uh, a son to him. Right. He never, he never stopped laughing when he saw me <laughs> doing that. So that's how we worked together. There was only three people involved in creating the Fender, uh, uh I would say the Fender world of amplifiers mm -hmm. and with the guitars. And that was Leo Fender, Freddie Tavares from Hawaii, who played the Hawaiian steel, and Harry Owens, who wrote the most beautiful Hawaiian songs, and, mm -hmm. uh, and me. And we sat in the little room and he used to say, why do you have to play so loud? I blew up, <laughs> over, I blew up over 50 of his amplifiers. <laughs> I, I tried to catch on fire his gentle speakers. <laughs> and so, that's how we made the, the D-130s, uh, uh, JBL D-130s, and we created, you know, the output transformer. And that's the secret of the big sound, mm -hmm. is the transformer, the output transformer. So, anyway, all of this stuff, um, you know, this diabetes really takes your brain and makes it stop. And then you can't remember, and then you start again. <laughs> yeah. And that just, that just what happened while I was, I went off on a, a freight train over there about talking about Leo and I forgot what the, the whole gist of the thing was. But the, the whole thing in a nutshell is, is to, oh, oh, what it was was when they wanted to interview me, Lana would say, well, is it going to be on the cover? And they said, oh, well, no, I got to talk with the editor and see if we can get it inside, you know, and put it inside. And Lana says, legends, Belong on covers, <laughs> yeah, not in, not inside. <laughs> and Dick Dale is a legend. Yeah, and uh, and so and I never looked at stuff that way. She's beating it into my head <laughs> because because I never never thought about uh, being great. Yeah, at anything because when I was with I've been in the martial arts since I was in my teens, eighteen. And I've been with masters from all over the world, and from Japan, Okinawa, everywhere. And I helped Ed Parker when he first came and brought Kempo to the United States to open. And he would, he would ask me things about his, his dojos and stuff like that. And we became very close. And his family, even the, the, the kids would call me I Uncle Dick when they were little. So the thing is, is that uh, I learned from them one day. I said to a master, 
why can't I be great? This was, in, in, and I'd been with the Buddhists, and I say, why can I, can I not be great? Mm-hmm. And where nobody can beat me. In other words, if I was an archer, I'd be the number one archer in the world and nobody could beat me. Right. Uh, or if I was the best pilot in my plane, or if I was fighting, and, and, and I loved in the martial arts, because my hands always loved the taste of flesh. <laughs> and that was told to me by Ed Parker. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he was the most incredible, incredible, incredible man known to man. And he was not human. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the moves, the way he thought was so unbelievable explosive. Hmm. So, so they, um, the thing was, I said, why can I be that way? And they said, grasshopper. <laughs> he said, <laughs> he says, you can. And he said, but you must give up everything. Hmm. You must eat it. You must live it, breathe it, sleep it. Everything. And you will become the greatest in what you do. Hmm. But he said, let me ask you a question. Would you rather be a jack of all trades, master of none, or master of one? Mm-hmm. If you were master of one, you would be awfully dull <laughs> at, at a group of people, being in a group of people, wouldn't you? Right. Or at a party, which I never went to parties. I don't like parties. <laughs> so the point lies is, because everybody's drinking and they're talking through their swollen tongue, or what that's what it may be. But the thing is, you'd be awfully dull, dull at a gathering. <laughs> that's not that a better word. And that's true. Yeah. Because look at Einstein. Yeah. He couldn't sit down and talk to a pilot and how to do a crazy eight, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he couldn't talk to a welder and say, how do you weld aluminum over, uh, galvanized, mm-hmm. uh, you know? And so, I chose that route to be curious of everything I look at and figure out why and how and what. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even as a child, I I researched people and wanted to know why they treated each other the way they did and, and how they could snap one day and be sleep the next day. And then I learned something. If I'm boring you, let me know. No, it's laying, fascinating. I'm laying, I'm laying down in bed here. That's, that's <laughs> why. So it, the thing lies is, like with, with a monk, I was taught this. There is a, you know how people look at people, what month are you born? They go, oh, what month are you? You know, <laughs> you know, oh, you're a Taurus. Oh, you're bullheaded. You're, you get angry. <laughs> and all stuff like that. <laughs> you know, they have <laughs> certain things that certain uh, you're a cancer. Oh, you're a go-getter, you know. <laughs> uh, they have all these things that they look at people the way that the astrology says that they're supposed to be. Well, there is some truth in all of that. Now, I emphasize the word some. And mm-hmm. what people don't, don't understand is there is a test that the monks have learned when they look at people and see things. And this test, if you rate it between, if you score between 1 and 30, 1 and 30, 
you have all the bad traits that your horoscope <laughs> that tell that tells you what you're supposed to be. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you will have all those bad traits. If you go from like thirty on up to about sixty sixty-five in that area, uh, you will have all the good and the bad <laughs> all together like porridge soup. Like veg like vegetable soup. So that means you can one day be cool and the next day be a jerk. You know what I'm saying? Right. So you have the total jerks of the first scoring. <laughs> then you'll have a mixture of a jerk and, and, and goodness in the second scoring. And if you go from 70s up to 100, you have totally atoned wisdom from being the jerk <laughs> and how to separate the jerk from the goodness. Hmm, so you will, so you are all the good points and let me tell you and and i i remember midway from studying with my masters i had taken that test and i was so thankful <laughs> that i was in the 80s well what happened is is that one master once told me to experience is to know to know is to understand to understand is to tolerate. And to tolerate is to have peace. That is considered third eye. Hmm. There's a book called Third Eye. You can read it. And so, to experience to know, you could be at a party, for an example, and you see a guy at the bar, and he's acting like a real jerk, loud, obnoxious, everything, it's disturbing everybody. Mm-hmm. Now you can go over there and knock him out, <laughs> but he's going to wake up, and he's still going to be a jerk. Right. So now, why is it that jerk? Well, I I thought that I was that jerk at one time in my youth because he wants to be liked, he wants to be noticed, mm-hmm. and he doesn't know how to do it. He doesn't realize that silence is golden. Mm-hmm. And I used to tell my students that I used to train that I would say, don't speak when you're in a group of people. I want you to look at them and smile when they address you mm-hmm. and say, thank you. <laughs> and that's that when they say something. Do not open your mouth to give them what you think that you know. Right. Because when you do, they will know how much you don't know. <laughs> and they will be on you like a used car salesman. <laughs> so just be quiet. Right. And then you will learn. So to experience is to know. I know why that guy is acting that way. So he doesn't mm-hmm. realize why. Now, to experience is to know, to know is to understand. Now that I know it, I can understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Experience is to know, to know is to understand, to understand is to tolerate. Now I can tolerate it. <laughs> so, to experience is to know, to know is to understand, and to understand is to tolerate, and to tolerate is to have peace. That means he now disappears in my mind. Mm-hmm. Because I know all those total four steps. 
Right. It took, it took me 18 years to understand that in my life, hmm. and another 18 and another 18 years to to use it. Hmm. So and understand it. Now is one that I'm going to tell you that monks do not use because this this here uh, is used for earthlings, <laughs> but the people who walk this earth. Right. Because the monks have already known better. <laughs> All right, now here it goes. Thoughts become words. Be careful. <laughs> the word perceivability is what is the destruction mm-hmm. of all business people, all marriages, all everything. What you say is perceived by the listener in their own way. Right. So it'll always be the opposite. And you'll say, I didn't mean that. <laughs> oh, yes, you did. Oh, yes, you did. Oh, I thought you get in a goddamn fight before you know it. Well, I can go into a court with 12 people and they'll call and they'll all say you were wrong. You know, you go through all of that. So yeah. that's the reason why monks stop talking. Hmm. Monks live with Mother Nature. They live with the animals of God's creatures. And they don't speak. Even the Japanese slap their children and say, don't speak. Because save the energy for your body. Mm-hmm. Your body needs your energy. Save it for your body. Hmm. Don't use it to say things that people don't know what you're talking about in the first place. <laughs> or they'll take it away. They'll take it in the wrong way. Right. So, don't speak. So, the monks, they don't speak. If someone gives them a gift of like a carving or a bowl or something, they bow and they smile. Mm-hmm. They don't say thank you. They don't have to. It's the gesture. Right. And when you have these kind of gestures, you're not going to be fighting people. You're hitting people. You just smile and bow. Hmm. And then you give them a gift. They smile and bow also. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I was once told (laughs) something funny. The Japanese smile and bow because they want to smell your hair. If you, whether you whether you washed it or not, <laughs> or, and they look at your shoes to see if you polished them or not, because if you didn't have these kind of things in your character, they don't want to do business with you. Mm-hmm. And that that's a, that's kind of a factual thing. So going back to the saying that this master gave me, thoughts become words. So be careful how they're going to be perceived. Words become actions which are created from the words. Mm-hmm. Actions become habits. Hmm. Because you're going to be doing that all the time. That's your <laughs> habits. Habits become your character. And that's a major word because hmm. that's a big, big ending of all the words I just said. Right. It builds your character. And your character becomes your destiny. Mm-hmm. Do you feel any of that? Yeah, it's really interesting. So the question that comes to my mind is, how, why do you think your path took you into music and how has that sort of become your destiny and your legacy? I was pushed into it by my father. Oh, really? And my father, he loved playing on the piano 
and my mother would make fun of him all the time because he had no left hand. He hit the run notes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and then he hit with the right hand, he hit the, the, the melody. Well, my dad was a physician machinist. And, and you know, and, and you know, when I was telling you about how corruptive and disruptive this people in control are. Yeah. My daddy, he worked two, three jobs at the same time to take care of his mom and dad, take care of our family. I remember in the snow, we couldn't even open up the doors of our house. There were times we had to open up a window to get out. <laughs> and this was in Quincy, Massachusetts. And I was born in Boston. Mm-hmm. Southeast, South Boston. And the thing was is that he had to get up and go and work and all of this. And his father used to carry a 100-pound bag on his back and walk down the street. <clears throat> and he, his father was from Beirut, Lebanon. Mm-hmm. In fact, we had the honor of the ambassador of the United States, the ambassador of Beirut, Lebanon, from the White House, invite Lana and I, and they flew us. Would be first class, they paid for it, <laughs> all the way to Washington, D.C., and to this beautiful big hotel with the president, give their thousand dollar plate dinner. <laughs> And the night before, there was a couple of over a couple thousand people that showed attendance that were from all over the world and from the White House that were everything from four or five star generals to the priest that was with the Pope. He was with Lana and I. Hmm. Uh, they, uh, the, the, the people who run the hospital, uh, St. Jude for the children. Right. And, and I knew Danny Thomas and, Stuff like that, and they—they they were these people. There were people that were like a hundred years old, and they were from Palestine. They were from Morocco. They were from everywhere, and they had Lana create a speech, an induction speech for me, and they said, "You know more about him than we do." <laughs> so she did the speech. We were able to have her mom and daddy come up from Florida as guests, and there was a big dinner presentation. And she got up on that podium, and she, along with other speakers that had very highly important, and she gave this speech that had me in tears, and I couldn't even friggin' talk. (laughs) And so when I got up there, I couldn't even barely talk, and I had to get myself in order. But I was able to speak mainly about the things I'm talking to you about. Right. And about our children and why our children are ending up the way they are mm-hmm. and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, some of the children in all these places are born into gangs because the parents are in gangs. Right. And we have all of this stuff going on that we should be taking care of. And Anyway, I, I, I told them pure, hard, cold truth. Mm-hmm. And there was tears in their eyes, tears in my eyes, 
and they gave me they uh, an ovation that I was too embarrassed to tell them to stop because <laughs> they just it kept going and going and going and presented me with a special achievement award and they you know they had showing films of what's going on over there over in those countries that mm. of the war of the war and the children you know being it's like somebody taking a a dog and just kicking it in the head you know what yeah. i'm saying yeah and and so they that's the reason why monks live like they do and they found that you know it don't sweat the <laughs> those were the snitches of the small shit, you know. It's right. just, hey, so what? You know, uh, take care of yourself to the point where cleanse your soul mm-hmm. and get that ego out of there. Yeah. Take that ego out of there and then reach out to help others. And if the others don't appreciate what you do, then screw them if they want to give up. Over a, a lifetime relationship of a friend that will be there to be with them and listen to their some of their problems and their sorrows when they lose somebody. You just lost a person that could have been a friend for life right. because of your of your idiotic character. Mm-hmm. Again, is the word. So you know that's what you've got to do. Now it's good to have a certain amount of ego. And that kind of ego is to respect what you do when you build something. This is one, mm-hmm. such as if you build a table, do not bend a nail and cover it with a piece of molding, <laughs> like taking a shortcut. Right. Because the public will never see it, and they'll never know it's there. Mm-hmm. But let me tell you something, my friend. If you have good character. You know it's there. Right. That's why when you walk in a grocery store, you see a can on the floor, even though somebody didn't pick it up, you pick it up and put it where it belongs. Right. That shows your character. So my dad used to say, I hate to pay him by the hour, I'd go broke. You know, but, <laughs> you know, but the point is, have the character. Unbend the nail and pull it out. Now, I mean, if you have that kind of a character, or somebody walking out of a restaurant when you see them. And many of them will say thank you. Some won't. You help the little old lady into a car. So the things that I love are the animals of Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. And my wife does. My food bill. <laughs> Goes more than my medicine bill <laughs> because they take care of all God's creatures on the high desert here and they live right on the property where we are because they know that we won't kill them and shoot them. Mm-hmm. She feeds them from her hands. And the thing is, the other thing is, the little children take care of as much as you can the little children that within birth to about Seven, they will create a backbone in their body that 
will be their character for the rest of their lives. Right. And that's why you you must show them that affection and what's right and what's wrong. Then, and then when the problems start arising from their, the best thing in the world is homeschooling. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people too will say, well, you know, they got to get out there and see what the public is all about. Bullshit. Would you throw your <laughs> child in a, in a box of rattlesnakes and see if he's going to live? Yeah. You, see, you want to say why? And the reason why I'm saying this is because people become a product of their environment. Right. And that's what's happening. You you have to teach them in the beginning before they walk through what I call life is a minefield. Mm-hmm. It is truly a minefield. And learn how, once again, to be quiet when you're dealing with people. And then try just to, as much as you can to get the legalities in order properly. And to try to find a good attorney <laughs> is like trying to pet a bunch of sharks in the ocean. <laughs> But there are some, hopefully, that have been trained and raised by their parents to be honest. And it's very difficult to find them. And once again, it's very difficult to find anyone that has made their character their their blessing to their Savior. And whatever that may be, you know, learn how to understand that you better start praying. It's important to realize what is after you when you die. Mm-hmm. And I could talk to you for three weeks. <laughs> I, I won't even start about that, about what we call the spirits. What's waiting? It's what, honey? What's waiting? Yeah, what's waiting for you. Because I... From being a disbeliever, I was born Catholic, but I don't like religions, mm-hmm. and they're just not truthful. And I have torn apart every religion that there is when they come to the door, and then they walk away going, because they, <laughs> they couldn't answer the questions. <laughs> but the point lies is, and, and I don't believe, I didn't believe in uh, the spirits uh, or... You, know, you call the, the whatever angels or you call it any of those things and unless they came down and shook my hand and said hi dick i'm here <laughs> and then i'd say well what took you so damn long you know and all of this stuff like that but now since lana has been an in, inducted into my life from we've been together year for years now mm-hmm. that she was born with this, you know, I didn't believe in mediums or anything like that. And she, But she was born with a thing called a sensitive. She is a sensitive. And she is what they call ten times more powerful than a medium. Hmm. And one day you want to sit down and talk. Because everything I would tell you, I have 
proof. I mean, undeniable proof that once they leave the body, there are different elevations that they go through and they're controlled by angels. And my mother and my father have been with me since they left this earth, which I never knew. Hmm. And now I know because through Lana being sensitive, she was brought to me by my mother to save my life, hmm. which she's done. She's done three times. I was on a journey for 12 hours and five doctors were trying to figure out why I collapsed hmm. for 12 hours. Lana walked into the screen. She saved Orson Welles' life. Hmm. When she, and she was trained by a World War II nurse in the Veterans Hospital in St. Petersburg, which is the largest in the country. And she <clears throat> never left my side and she walked into the doctors and said, may I see your screen? And she goes, he has three fistulas. One, two, three. The fistula is a hole, mm -hmm. it was, which is caused by the radiation I went through for six weeks every single day. And the chemotherapy for six weeks every single day. And she said, he has three fistulas. Do you see them? And they went, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Get the chopper. Get them into pump springs. We're going to lose them. We're going to lose them. Wow. And she said, no. And then I said, no, I want to go home. And tomorrow I'll go. They said, you will not see tomorrow if you go home be a wretch. Lana said, I'm taking them into Beverly Hills. And we drove four and a half hours to get into Beverly Hills in the middle of the night to put me into a hospital and spent 12 days running tests all throughout me till they were operating on me. And then they found, and then they made a mistake and Lana found it. And that's another story. And why I'm going through what I'm going through now. Hmm. They had their, their machine magnified five times and they didn't realize it. They couldn't figure out why my kidney stopped and why my bladder wasn't working. And I said, she said, they just stopped to think that it was magnified. So they hit the button. So they said, Oh my God, it was magnified five times. They said his, his, his bladder is the size of a, I can't tell you. With the size, let's put it in another uh, explanation, the size of a pear. Hmm. And that's why nothing, everything stopped and wasn't working. They wanted, and I went through two hours, two operations, nine and a half hours long. Wow. And then another one, five and a half hours long. And they wanted to go back in again because of the mistake that they made, they could have saved me and stretched the bladder and made it bigger. And I had to wear, I had to, I had to, uh, uh, shove a tube up me for two and a half years and, uh, to urinate. And then I had to wear a bag for two and a half years. And now I wear a bag coming out of my intestines. Hmm. And, and, uh, that take my fecal matter. That's how much Lana has saved me. And now, but she came into my life. And when she came into my life, I now have, you know, you see these guys on Ghost Hunters? 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Have you ever seen of those programs? Yeah. Okay. On a scale of one to ten, when I look at that, I I laugh. <laughs> I I go into hysterics. Then they got all these things that they're they're trying to make the voices come through. Right. I have an actual recording of my mother talking to me through Lana's body and Lana in a coma situation. No lips moving, no nothing. But my mother talking to me for 20 minutes. Wow. Yelling at me, <laughs> telling me all the things the way she did. Dickie, don't trust anyone. They're a bunch of bastards. Her, <laughs> her Bostonian accent. And she goes, Lana. I brought Lana to you. <laughs> and Lana, when I first uh, uh, was in contact with Lana, she said, your mother came to me and said, well, in, when I was in the church, and I'm praying, your mother touched my shoulder and said, please take care of my Dickie. He needs you. Mm. No one has ever called me Dickie in my life, <laughs> except my mother. Mm. That was the first light bulb to turn on. And then it just started going from there. And, you know, in the beginning, and, and I have my father uh, breaking through, used, they used electrical energy. Uh, that's the reason why our iPhones, I had my iPhone replaced nine times. <laughs> nine times. <laughs> and they couldn't figure out why. All my messages, once they came in, disappeared. Hmm. All my, uh, uh, anybody's message from the phone disappeared in a day. All, yeah, the ringer, when it rings, if my phone rings, that's why I never answer, I never answer my phone, because it doesn't ring. <laughs> I put, you know how you move the the ringer all the way up to the highest point, right? With a with a button. When I go and I check my phone, the button's all the way back down to zero. <laughs> and the technicians couldn't figure out why. And I bought Lana her iPhone. Same thing happens to her. So we didn't find out until. So they were replacing them for nothing. <laughs> and then my mother said. Oh, I'm sorry, I messed up your phones. We used the energy from them. <laughs> and that's how we know. And when people come here, and, and we have about a dozen uh, spirits that are here. This was a mission at one time. Mission Aviation Fellowship, where the old pilots came after they retired, and they brought their families here, and they practiced flying up and down. This is the private airport. And because they fly food into the kids, into the jungles. And they would teach the religion to them hmm. while they, the, the husbands were flying. And the mothers had the children here and they'd stay here, you know, for some length of time and when they practiced. And those spirits are here. A lot of hear them singing all the time, like Christian songs. Hmm. And when Lana didn't want to tell me what, what she was doing when I picked her up at the airport. My mother said, I'm the one who picked up Lana, told Lana to go and, and get the money to fly to see you. 
I, I was with her on the, pl- on the damn plane, for Christ's sake. When this Libby, she talks. And, and she, in Lana, she told Lana, which she had Lana never done before, take a dollar and go in to the quick pick. You know, scratch off. Mm-hmm. Lana took a dollar in there and went over $500. <laughs> and that was the money to buy her ticket to fly to me. Wow. And I picked, and I picked her up in LA and I drove her to the ranch here and as we're coming up our dirt road, which is a mile long, we're 3,000 feet above Palm Springs. We're in the high desert, mm-hmm. right next to the Marine base, the largest in the country. And my backyard is nothing but hundreds of miles of volcanoes and sand and all kinds of stuff. And as we drove down the dirt road, Lana said, she called me daddy. Because her real father was killed in the railroad track, and her real and her stepfather, since retired, uh, a police officer, uh, he was decorated. <clears throat> he was a gun battle and came out alive. And he trained everybody in the force for 40 years, and he quit because of the politics of the heads above him. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, they screwed him out of about $10,000 because they wouldn't sign a certain document. Hmm. So, you know, so anyway, he is a, is a wonderful man, but he was very strict with Lana. So he was like, my dad never picked me up and put me on the lap and said, hi, honey, I love you. My dad used to say, Mr. Go out and take out the trash. It's because of his father being so strict. And so what happened was Lana was were in the car. And she said, Daddy, are there any instances, are there any, uh, uh, Indians like that? Mm-hmm. And, uh, were there Indians around here? And I said, well, of course. I said, this here, where we are right now, many burial grounds are here. And then believe it or not, I am in, I am into history so much. And, and, all the way in the days of the dinosaurs. Where we are right now was under hundreds and hundreds of feet of water. And we're 2,000 feet above sea level. Hmm. This was an ocean here. And how I know, when I take my tractor and I'm digging in the ground, thousands and thousands of seashells are all there. And I have, I am in boxes. (laughs) <laughs> and when I, and when I, it's one thing to pick up a seashell from a store, but when you pick it up from your own property, the high desert, and it's in your hand, that is, God damn, that's history. <laughs> yeah. You know, that is friggin' history. <laughs> and you can feel it go right through your arms. Huh. But in, anyway, she, she said, are the Indians here? I said, yeah, they got all those kind of, you know, burial grounds. She goes, well, they're here now. Then she didn't want to tell me about her past about since she was two years old. And then she thought I might put her in a funny farm or something. <laughs> and she told me she's been here now. Well, she's taking a shower. She came out and said, Daddy, she says that there was a giant six-foot medicine man standing there looking at me and our dog black labrador was growling out hmm. and he 
he said he'd been here since the 1800s and his, and he talked about his coming down to Oregon with his wife on the trail and she died and he's been here and he says, I'm here because, uh, you are sick and I'm sick. Dick, Dick is me. And he says, I'm here to help you. And he says, I live here. And, and then all of a sudden, she started, I'm just going to skip to a couple of things. She started getting claw marks down her back from her neck all the way down to her torso, bottom of her torso, through the skin, quarter of an inch wide, an inch in space apart, three of them coming straight down her spine. And I used to take the ice and put it on it, and it would take 40 minutes to get it, make it all go away. That's a whole nother story. He was letting them know that he's here. Hmm. And that, that's a whole other story. But anyway, through all of these things going on, when Lana was two years old, her mother, once again, she was stirring soup for her mom, who had MS. Her mom's brother, and they were poor, and her great-grandmother was full-blooded Cherokee. And her great-grandfather had a four of Jesse James's guns, because Lana is related to Jesse James. Hmm. And they have the whole family tree and the younger gang. And he sold those guns to the museum in Minnesota, the museum there. Right. And there's a big history of being all of that. Now, Lana, they were poor. So they were staying at this place that their grandmother had for them. And a record was given to Lana's mother by her brother called The Tiger's Loose. And they had a picture of one of my tigers sitting on me <laughs> in my arms and me looking straight ahead. <laughs> and that was the one that Colonel Parker, Elvis's manager, told me. He said, Dick, put a couple of cartoons of the tiger in the back. And I <laughs> put my tiger's footprint on there. And he goes, if you make any money, send it to me. <laughs> he was, he, he uh, when he first brought Elvis to California, he had a meeting called my father and me, and, and I sat in his big desk there at the studio, and he said, my dad said, Did, would you like to manage Dick? And he said, I would love to manage Dick because I like what he stands for, but I just invested 80 thousand dollars into a boy called Elvis, <laughs> and I wanted to see who had California so tied up that I couldn't move. And and Dick Clark said the same thing. Dick Clark said on an interview, I went to California thinking I was going to just take over and do it. This guy called Dick Dill. They had everything going. <laughs> so that was in the 50s. So now what happened was Lana looked at the tiger and loving animals like she does. See, if she sees a dead rabbit on the goddamn freeway, she says the rosary, for Christ's sake. <laughs> And so she turns around and looked at his eyes and looked into my eyes. And that's when she had this power. At two. And she, cause she used to sit in her, her, uh, bed thing, uh, and, and talk to the spirit because where they were at, nobody would live there because they said it was haunted. So this spirit was there with the guy telling her how many times he was stabbed in a poker game. And he was playing with their little plastic sewing machine. 
And he'd be with her every night talking to her. And now, that's at two years old. Wow. At three years old, she started writing letters to Doris Day, who Doris just sent her something the other day. Her and Doris, she called her Dodo. So, and she wrote to Joan Fontaine. She wrote to over 30 people. She was into the people from that era. At right. two years old, three years old. <laughs> and uh, Joan Fontaine sent her a personal black leather purse with a jag, gold-plated jaguar on it as a handle because <laughs> she knew how, how much she loved animals. And Joan died a week later. Wow. But Doris still writes her all the time. And she's been with all these actors. That's another story on her in Florida where they all came to perform. Johnny Cash had her on his lap for <laughs> a, a four months singing on the stage with him. He wanted to adapt him and June wanted to adopt her because they felt that her mother couldn't take care of her. Hmm. And the mother got in a big fight with him, stuff like that. But Johnny loved her. Joe DiMaggio wouldn't let little, uh, when he brought Marilyn's mother to Florida and put her in that hospital. Well, Lana used to sit with the mother and bring her things all the time. And the mother used to call Lana uh, Marilyn. So, and Joe hmm. never let anybody go near Lana when she was that child and walking around, uh, the park. He'd bring it to the baseball games and everything else like that. And, and the Red Skeleton, you've heard of him, I'm sure. Oh yeah. All right. He had Lana with him. He gave her one of his paint, clown paintings. And I remember when he got started in Hawaii because hmm. I, I was living in Hawaii and performing. When uh, with the working doing things with the Duke, Duke Anamoko. Yeah. So so he turned around and would bring Lana every time he did an autographing session. He said, Lana, would you help me with these people? And because Lana was really brilliant, she's she's got these powers that are so intelligent. She ran five dealerships for the Palestinians and cooked for them over so many hundred of them, and she cooked their Arabic food for them. She spoke with, have you ever heard of Arafat? Oh, yeah. She spoke with him on the phone. Hmm. Yeah. And he wanted to talk with her. He wanted to bring her over there. And he introduced her to his, his, uh, with his wife, or the secretary. Lad, I could tell you all that stuff. But she's got such a background. And she did over a hundred plays from Gone with the Wind, Joan of Arc, everything. Where the show palace was in Florida. Where they all came to be there from Mickey Rooney, from Ricardo Mucklebaum, everybody, they all, uh, met and was with Lana. Hmm. And Lana never had any boyfriends. She never went out. She always never drank, never did any drugs, but she always tried to help people. She, this one man had, I don't know how many blocks of cars, about 10,000 cars of every style from the collectors and, mm. and he was very old and because he trusted Lana helped him and he trusted her he wanted to leave all those cars to her because his wife hated him <laughs> and, and and Lana wouldn't take him hmm. he had he had Duesenbergs he had everything she said I can't do that I can't she's very honest that way right so and she won't do things that are wrong mm -hmm. she's very very religious so what happened was she looked at this album of the Tigers Loose and looked in my eyes 
at two and told her mother, Mommy, one day I'm going to be with him. <laughs> and the mother says, Oh, you're silly. <laughs> her mother even told me that story. I, and Lana remembered it. <laughs> so now, with these powers that she's had, she can walk into her room and stop. And say, three people died here. How do you know? I see them. Hmm. And talk, and everybody that, who knows the history, yes, they did. They died here. We go into a, a hundred year old hotel, three stories up. She goes, Daddy, I just saw a little boy playing with a ball in the backyard. We go inside and it says, is there any boys we play in the backyard? And she says, a little boy fell from the third window and died with this ball. Hmm. And there are people that say they, they also see him. I mean, I can go on. That'll blow you away. And <laughs> so now all these things I, you know, I cannot deny because the truth keeps coming. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, what, what do you call a person? Debunking something. Right. They cannot be debunked because hmm. there's just too many people in, in contact. I tried to trick my father. And say, hey, dad, when I was five, I, he had a, he bought a, a Chris Craft boat. And, and he took my mother in it and scared the shit out of her and she made it sold, <laughs> made him sell it, made him sell it. So I said, only my dad can answer this question. And every time I'm talking with my dad, Lana says, everything you're saying, your dad is saying at the same exact time, you are so in tune with him, you don't know it. Hmm. So I said, dad, what was your favorite boat? And Donna says, your mom's sitting there and your dad's sitting there and he's just looking down at the floor not saying anything. <laughs> I guess, come on, dad, say something. And I know now why he wasn't because it would have started an argument. So he, he wouldn't say. I said, come on, dad. I didn't want to give it away. But then he said, the clipper. Well, I never heard of a clipper in my life. And he said, I like the clipper. It was a fun boat. It was a nice boat, the clipper. So then I gave in. And I said, come on, Dad. What about the crisscross? My mother's mouth came through Lana so strong and said with her accent, I made him sell the damn thing. For Christ's sake, it was so expensive. <laughs> and then my dad said, oh, yeah, the crisscross was a nice boat. And I didn't go any further. <laughs> when I got home, I called up my cousin Bobby, who was in his 80s, who's the son of my father's sister. And he was always with my dad, too. I said, Bobby, did you ever hear of a clipper? He goes, yeah, that was your dad's favorite boat. He used to go fishing on it every weekend all day. <laughs> now, I'm telling you, how can I, how can I, how can I debunk that? Yeah. You know what I mean? How, how can I do that? Then, when I'm driving down the street, it's when these things happen. And they happen here in the house. My dad is trying to come through and he doesn't have the energy that my mother does for some reason. So he strains. I love you, Dick. Like that. And I look over at Lana and she's, her mouth is open and she's like in a coma. Because it happens when she's tired and mm -hmm. she's been talking and she's been talking to them and she doses off. But then they go through her body. But her body, when they're done, I have to stop the car and get around and make her breathe oxygen and her head hurts so bad and everything. 
That's the aching killer. Because especially when she has wrong with her. So that's why I yell at them now. And I say, Ma, for Christ's sake, stop it. You know, you're going to kill her. And she goes, stop yelling at your mama. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> and so, and she goes, I'm not hurting her. I'm not going to hurt her. You know, stuff like that. But I have all of this. I've learned to tape it on my iPhone as it's happening. Mm-hmm. I have the Indian that came through her. And did you, you remember you've seen movies where they dance around the fire going, that vibrato that they use? Right. I've, I've got a whole taping of him coming through Lila. Wow. Now, Lila has no idea of what is happening when it happens. Hmm. She has no recollection of anything. And when I play it back to her, she really, you know, freaks out. Right. And stuff like that. And so, and, and here I was driving down the road for half an hour, her, her Cherokee grandmother. Lana went to sleep, and all of a sudden I hear this voice going, Dick, I can't thank you enough for taking care of my precious Lana. And, you know, her father was killed on the railroad track, and he did this, he did a lot of bad things. She's telling me all about the goddamn history for half an hour. And I'm talking back, it's like she's sitting next to my shoulder. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, you know, well, why did they treat Lana? Dick, and she interrupts me. Dick, they were just jealous of Lana. They were all jealous of Lana. In other words, the mother's, uh, grandmother's family, her daughter. She goes, I can't believe I raised a daughter so evil, so bad, like this. And Lana just took care of me and loved me. And I love Lana like that. Hmm. And then my mother's telling me how she, you know, I said, how did you find Lana? She goes, I read your damn emails. <laughs> <laughs> and the, all the poems that Lana sent me, about three and four poems a day. And then she says, I've loved you since I was two years old, and I can't let you die. And she never tried to contact me through her life because of the respect she was going. She wanted to be a nun because she had a very dear friend in one of the Beach Party movies who became a nun, and she wanted to go to the mission. And she almost became that. And then I came, it was me being in, in her life, and she'd tell, him, tell everybody, uh, what's it, Orson Welles wanted to take her to Hollywood to work with him. And he said, she said, I'm saving myself to Dick Dale. And Johnny Cash, she said that to Johnny. She said it to everybody, Big Mile, everyone. And, and then one day, in her life, her angel, because she was always taking care of her mother too, you know, when the father was the MS. And then one day, her angel, Bernadette, who has been with her ever since birth, said to her, he's dying. She said, he's dying. You've got to save him. She told her mother, and her mother said, contact him. To the email, email. And that's how I was contacted with Lana. Hmm. And then she came, and then she, then we started talking. And I was in Europe and I was in pain. The infection had gone through those holes. The specialism in my body had leaked into my body, poisoning my body. The pain was so beyond belief I couldn't even get out of a car. 
the band members would have to lift me out of the car and get me on the stage. At one time, they had they had to put uh, carry me into a chair on the stage at the Coach Hudson Center on Capistrano. Hmm. And I did the show and I got a standing ovation at the end of the night. But now I'm 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 back up in the strength that I've been able to Lana says it's the angels doing it for you. But now how how can I debunk anything now? It's right on my goddamn face. <laughs> and my mother is there all the time telling Lana what the, how to make certain foods and Lana's a great cook. And my mother taught me how to cook because I did all the cooking for the family when they were working their jobs. But I've got this on tape. Uh, not tape. I've got it on recordings. Uh, then one day we're driving down the road and I said, Lana, I want you to text the band, uh, the, the band members, the roadies. Uh-huh. So she grabs my phone and she screeched. And she goes, Daddy, look! And she showed me the uh, my phone. And you know when you text somebody, it's usually a little balloon there with the typing in it. Right. And and it's uh, either I think it's I think it's green or something like that. And you push the button and you send it. And so if somebody texts you, you get this balloon, and then you text them back, and it's a different color balloon. It's either white with black printing in it, or it's reversed. You know, you you, you with yeah. that, right? Yeah. Okay. I get this message that says, "Hi, son, I'm here." Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know what's so funny? In the balloon, it says, "Hi, son, I'm here." The answer is in another balloon below it, like I would write. Uh huh. And it's a different color, like I would write in black and you know white. It's the same message. Hi, son, I'm here. So I try to look up the address where it comes from, and it says Dick Dale. That's it. So I try to answer it, even though I've got a double statement there. And I try to answer it. I get a message back. You cannot use this address. <laughs> And I have at least six of those. And what happens is my dad says, I don't understand computers and I don't like that. And he says, this device that you have, I don't know how to use it. He says, I just yell at it. I just yell as loud as I can at it (laughs) with the energy that I have. And I don't like it because when I try to yell at it and tell it, uh, my energy goes away and I can't stay. Whereas he can stay with me watching football all day. So what happened was that he, uh, if he says sometimes, hi, son, sometimes it'll be perfect. And then sometimes it'll be S-O-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N or H-I-I-I-I-I-I or U or Y-U like that. Because the, and I figured it out because the electrical energy is not strong enough. So he's straining because that's the way he would uh, yell to me when he's trying to come to Lana. Dick, you know, I love you. Like that. And so, Dick, I love you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whereas my mother can talk right to me. She's very Ted, where was well, my buddy Ted was in the car. And Ted knows my mother. Knew my mother, of course. Because me and Ted rode our motorcycles with 
cops used to chase us all the time. And then they tell Ted, we know your buddy, Big Dale. You tell him we're going to get him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, Ted's in the car. And my mother comes to the ladder again. Hey, Ted, when are you going to get married? And he goes, hi, Fern. Because he doesn't get, because he's seen his father after he died. Has come to him more than once on his bed. Hmm. So he he doesn't freak out. And my mother was yelling at him, going, Ted, you better take care of your damn cat. For Christ's sake, she ran away for three days. And when she come home, she was so scared, she went through the hole underneath the porch. And you were listening to Dick Dickie's CD while you were driving home. And he goes, Jesus, Fern, that's true. When I got home, I sat on the porch and the cat came home after three days. And it went underneath the hole. Now, how can you debunk that? And I've got it on tape. You know, so, and I've had other people ride with me that are disbelievers. And when my mother decides to come through, she comes through. And I said, well, how do you feel about that one? And then he recorded it on his iPhone. And he goes, I guess, well, what do you think about that, Carlos? Would you think I hired some actress to play the part of my mother? <laughs> <laughs> so, all this stuff now, I want to... And, and you know what's so weird? The guy who is the head on the East Coast, I think Pennsylvania, all the paranormal thing and all that stuff like that. He's been on television and everything. Uh-huh. Uh, a very famous person. This Lana's cousin. She just found that out from her mother. Wow. So now what my mother says is that they do not eat food because they are nothing but energy. And she says they do not sleep. But the most wonderful part of the whole thing is, of the afterlife is, my mother had pain when I used to hold her in my arms and they put 11-inch needles right into her groin inside. Her pain was so severe. And I would hold her all the time, and we would have to do this. My father had pain. At the, they would take him to the hospital every other night. And he went through a nine-hour operation, and still the pain remained. And, you know, we used to have to take a needle into his stomach and drain the fluid out of him. And they had pain like no one should ever, like, I, like I've been through. I would never. Whenever my pain is hurting me now, because of the kidney, uh, I'm thinking it's the kidney or something's rotten in there that's really just hurting so bad when I try to get up or sit up or anything like that. Well, I think of the pain I went through in the beginning. And I, then I say, well, you think you got pain now? What about when you couldn't lay down, sit down, get up, or do nothing? So don't bitch. <laughs> so all I do is I teach people to swear at it and laugh at it and make jokes about it and they all talk about it. And that's why I'm, I feel I'm being kept alive to have these people that are coming to see me and bouncing around that stage like a wacko <laughs> and going, how the hell does he do it in 77? Well, I'm going to be 78 in May. Yeah. And how does he do it without taking the use of painkillers and drugs and everything else? Right. And, and they say, I'm not going to moan and groan like 
like I'm doing after seeing him. <laughs> and he's sitting here signing for another hour. I, I, we, we performed, you know, at Viva Las Vegas. We had 30,000 people there. I, I performed 500,000 in Berlin. But I don't like that. But the thing like is because <laughs> yeah, I can't be close to them. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. But uh, Viva Las Vegas and Kid Rock and stuff like that. Well, Viva uh, in Vegas, we're going to do that in uh, 2016 again. I sat, after I did my concert, I sat for five and a half hours at the table with Lana, signing the line of people after the concert. Wow. And before I did the college getting ready to get on the stage, I had people in my dressing room and they wanted to take pictures in my bag that's attached to my like uh intestines. Right. It totally exploded loose, was full of crap, with diarrhea, and it went all the way down my legs. And I said, guys, I, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go to the bathroom, I gotta go to the bathroom, and I'm yeah. just on stage. I went in there, and Lana come in there, and there I'm standing there with crap all over me, my shirt, my pants, everything. And she's going, and we had no backup clothes with us at the time because of the circumstances. Right. So she had to take my pants and take my shirt and wash them all in the sink. And then wring them out and I put them on wet. <laughs> and I got on the stage and did an hour and a half concert. Rock and roll, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, but now there's a moral to this. Make, don't try to hide it. Yeah. Make fun of it. <laughs> and let the people know Hey, like in Hawaii, well, like we used to say all the time, and Kui Lee, the great singer, used to say, ain't no big thing, brother. <laughs> B-R-U-D-D-H-A, brother. So, you know, on stage, I, I, I explain the facts to people because I know there are people in that audience that are going through the same friggin' crap that I'm going through. Right. And when they see me standing up there and come right out instead of being Mr. Showbiz right. and hiding it all, just say, hey, I bleed like you do, pal. <laughs> the only thing is I pay more taxes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the thing, you know, I bleed like you. So, and I tell them, I said, thank you for supporting me with your letters and everything, and I just went through another surgery. And this is what I did. And so watch out for this when this happens. Watch out for this type of, uh, you know, just don't take one opinion from this doctor. You go and find a lot of opinions. Because, you know, guys have had their foot cut off and they didn't need it. So, you know, that's, that's what it is. So, like I'm trying to tell these kids, when you start off, Research how you can do this stuff yourself to, well, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of, you can ask me any question you want at when I dismiss with this. You know, if you tell me what time it is, I'll tell you how to build a clock. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want you to make a mistake or assume something. You right. know, that's the whole thing. So with these things here, like when I was playing Las Vegas, I could have signed with the 
with the mob. You know what I'm saying? Right. Although the mob took care of Vegas and they treated people the best way. I mean, they gave, they fly you out free. They gave you rooms. They did things. But what I'm saying is I didn't sign with them to perform and do a 30 day stint in the big rooms. I played in the small rooms. There, I only had to deal with agents and and also the actual buyer of the casino. Right. Now, so I didn't make as much money as the other guys, or Wayne Newton did. And look at how many times he went bankrupt. Yeah. But but what he owed those guys that controlled, and he had to work thirty days straight. Doing three shows, four shows a day. Yeah. Sure, I had to do three, four shows a night, a day. But the point lies is, when I got my money, I was happy with the money I got. And I paid the agents. And I, what I had, and I paid my guys. And I took that money. And I got books and books on real estate. Hmm. And I invested, I got a book called How I Turned a Thousand into a Million in Real Estate. And, <clears throat> and then I got another one, How I Turned a Million into Three Million in Real Estate. <laughs> and I went and followed that book. And the bankers that I used to work with, they used to say, Oh, that don't work, that don't work, that don't work. And the bankers would end up saying, Jesus, we don't think that story. And he always made it work. <laughs> so they always gave me what I needed. But I learned how to buy and fix up and sell in real estate. So I took that little bit of money from the Vegas, working 20 years, Vegas, Reno, and Tahoe. And I... Hell, I got Frank Sinatra's pool table in my house. He wanted to ma- <laughs> he wanted to manage me, but he wanted to take seventy five percent. Wow! And my father said, "I'll put a bullet in his head first. <laughs> so, but anyway, we were friends. He came to see me with the guys and gave me a sweater from Milano, Italy, and and, and there were Joey uh, Bishop. All these guys were very good. And and what happened was, I I. I took the the low road, you know what I'm saying? Right. Instead of selling myself to the big road. Right. And what I made, that's what I want to tell these kids, what I made from going the hard way and the low road, I looked at it different. I said, at least I'm working. Right. Because there was a time I was getting paid $20 in food just to play. Hmm. So... You know, and then uh, a little old lady got me a job in Kansas City, Missouri, playing six nights a week in a little old club owned by the mafia. And then, in fact, they they whacked the guy that owned it. (laughs) So, in the end, but the point lies, I was there for a month, and and my daddy gave me the down payment for my motorhome, my sports coach. And I lived in that thing. I parked alongside of the building, and I lived in it. And I played every six nights a week for a month at a time. Hmm. 
And that's, and I took that money and I kept saving and saving to reinvest into buying a broken down, fixed up house. And when I did that, I sold it and I bought a bigger one. Then I bought another one. And that's how I became sufficient that way. And the music was the food. It was, it's, it's, it's what kept me alive. Right. And, and in the beginning, I was a little bit on stage of working for my father because he turned around because I was too embarrassed. <laughs> so my father said, why don't you help, uh, Billy over here? He's going to be in a talent contest. And he said, uh, uh, play the background. You strum on the guitar. You know how to strum. And I really didn't know how to play the guitar. I was using the ukulele chords. And that's another story how I got the guitar. It was like, yeah, I was in deliverance. And, <laughs> and these guys were playing and I was taking swamp, swamp berries from my grandma to make blueberry turnovers where we, where I would go where my grandpa and grandma lived from Poland. They came from Poland. And, they, it was all forest well, behind them, swamps. And then these guys were playing and they, five of them were sitting there with rolled up t-shirts with cigarettes in them. And, and then I'd walk in and say, Hey, hey, nice tooth you have. <laughs> like <laughs> that's what it was. And, and he said his guitar was for sale. It was an old acoustic. And I goes, how much? He was eight bucks. Eight bucks. <laughs> oh God, that was all the money in the world. Cause I was making. Five cents an hour wow. working at working at a bakery in those days. Gas was twelve cents a gallon, and you could go to a, a market and you could you could go to a movie for ten cents. <laughs> I used to fill up a whole potato sack, like it'd be a hundred pounds almost, of clams. I dig clams in the muck. I go down and it was all the way up to my knees in that in the low tides and sell it for a dollar. <laughs> so, you know, and you know when I tell kids today on, on the stage, they say, you know, you guys think you got a good <clears throat> or you complain about what you're doing. Right. And I say, from the days that man was on this earth, there is one thing that did not change, and that was the muscles in his body. Hmm. He had a body. <laughs> the other thing that changed was your brain. You either had character or not. Right. Or you were either smart, educated or not. Now, going on that formula, if you were living in 1937, when I was born, and today, if I asked you to, to go out and dig ditches for five cents an hour, <laughs> would you do it? Yeah, probably not if, for five cents an hour. And, you wouldn't believe the howl I get <laughs> from the audience. And would you set up bowling pins uh, while they're throwing balls out at you? <laughs> and uh, you know, that's what I used to do. Would you work in a market? Carrying packing bag bags and carrying them out to the car. A woman slammed the damn car door in my finger and it cut off my mesh my finger. And didn't didn't even say, Oh, I'm sorry. 
You know what I'm saying? What you get your finger there for? You know, like that. And here I am being nice, carrying the goddamn bags <laughs> on. So the thing lies is that's what I was getting. So I said, what, what has changed? I haven't changed. My body hasn't changed. The only thing that's changed is my mind and your mind to decipher whether you want to work a five cents an hour or complain about getting $10 an hour. Mm-hmm. Working at a takeout, or working uh, on construction. The young kids that are trying to, somebody should sit them down and, and, and try to explain to them. I try to do it my, at my concerts. Right. I don't do it every night, but there, but I, every night I make them give thanks to all our troops that are over there that leave their families and their loved ones and come home sometimes in pieces. Right. And who the hell's taking care of them? Yeah. And and they shouldn't be over there in the first place. Yeah. And all of this stuff like that. But and I and give and tap them on the shoulder and say thank you and uh, and the firefighters. I, I know what that's all about because I was in the crash crew with the Air Force. And, and and went through some pretty horrific things. And uh, whenever you see a firefighter who goes out there for the fires or whether they're building the force, half of the guys don't even get paid. They donate themselves. <clears throat> so when you see a firefighter, say thanks. Just tap them on the shoulder. And say thank you for what you do. Yeah. And the same way with the police department. When they go out, they don't know they're playing a Russian roulette. Yeah. And they bought a little car, and I had so many of my phone friends that I have there, guys just from their families. Uh, guys walk up to a car and say, Hi, guys, how are you today? And they blew his head off with a shotgun from the back seat. Wow. So I've lost those people. We're in the world, and that's that. But I just she so gets so emotional about why aren't people there with a good character? Yeah. Why aren't they? Why don't they respect? Why don't they have? Why? Why? Why can't they? I said. I try to tell her. I said, Lana. Everybody does not think or have the character that you have. So don't expect everybody. To be uh, polite, right, and respectful, like you are, and you know, and don't let it affect you. Realize how can you get mad at an idiot if they don't know any better, right? Buddha said that. So the point is, is that you know, just realize. My mother used to say, and mothers have much wisdom, <laughs> and fathers. My mother used to say, consider the source. Right. But then Lana would say, yeah, but why do you talk to those same people over and over? <laughs> and I says, because those same people can open a door if they find something about you that they like. You just don't have to go to bed with them. <laughs> That's the difference. Yeah. And the old saying, keep your enemies close to you. <laughs> and watch out for the so-called friends. Yeah. Because you never know when a friend is going to stick it to you. Yeah. But you know what your enemy 
is up to. Right. So so you can put all your guns in a row. <laughs> you know, or they say put all your ducks in a row. <laughs> so back in Boston. Or you can say, Hey Vinny, get the bat. <laughs> so, but the thing is that at least when you're dealing with the evil person or the bad character person, you you're forewarned. So what you do is take some of your wisdom and protect yourself, whether it's with legality, legalities, or things that can be taken into court, which unfortunately, if you have to do. In other words, just don't go blindly signing your life away and saying yes. Right. Like my daddy would say, when you want to buy something, no matter how excited you are when you see it, go home, go to bed, and wake up the next morning and see if that same excitement is there. Right. And if it is, then do research. Now, today you can get on the computer and you can get uh, customers' opinions of what they have bought and what they've gone through when they tried to get them fixed. Did the company stand behind it? Or did they fix it without question? Right. So how long it lasted? So, so my moral of the story is just don't and dive in deep water that you think is deep. Because you might hit your head on the bottom of the pool. <laughs> <laughs> I just made that up. That's pretty good. <laughs> so anyway, that, you know, what, what makes a star or a person success to be looked at is definitely the word, you could say promotion, PR, and all the stuff like that. But the one word that encompasses it all is called exposure. Mm -hmm. And then once you get that exposure, figure out how to market it. Right. Because there, you know, there are people that are very intelligent in one way that can design and create an object that could be, you know, like the safety pin. And then, but once they do that, that's all they know how to do. Right. So that's why they have what they call headhunters in businesses. Mm -hmm. So go out and find a person now that knows how to create a proto of it. Mm -hmm. So you have to get the proto made. And then once you have the proto made that you got it in your hand, then you have to find, now you don't know how to go and address it to like Walmart. Because all you know is how you found the company that made it. The other guy was the one who drew it up and said, this is what I got to have made. Right. Well, he's going to find somebody to make it. So then <clears throat> they found somebody to make it. Now you're going to find somebody to go and take that and take it to like a Walmart. I'm just using that as a, a word for a company. And, and then sit down with the buyer of Walmart stores and say, this is what I have. 
Now, you think it, it ends there? <laughs> no, it doesn't. You know why? Because the buyer is going to say, can you make 50000 in this, uh, for the, for the month? Now the guy, all he did was have a guy proto make it, see? <laughs> now, someone's going to find the company that can make 50000 of them, boom, overnight. Right. So that takes another brain, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it does. And then once, now they've got it, and then you've got to get somebody that is smart enough to wheel and deal with the buyer of Walmart so you don't get shafted. And that would be in the legalistic right. market. So you see all the different things you've got to do to how many steps you've got to go through? Right. There's, there's no such thing as one person being able to have that mentality. You just... You know, you know, uh, Henry Ford, they tried to take away his company for his family. And they said he doesn't know a thing about cars. <laughs> and he turned around and when they went into the court, they, the judge said, Mr. Ford, what do you know about cars? The making of a car, the engine, this and that and everything. And he goes, well, you know, I really don't know that much. <laughs> I have the ideas, but you know what I have on my desk? I've got about 12 buttons here, and each button I push will bring me the expert in that division that I need to know. Right. And he'll come into my office and tell me the right way to go. And the judge said, case dismissed. <laughs> and, and, and that's, that's true. Yeah. That's, that's a true story. So, anyway. So, and what do you do? (laughs) 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 What is your fun in life? (laughs) Uh, I love music and, but I have no music talent. So I just take pictures and write about it and talk to people about it. So. Well, that, 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 that feeds your, your desire. It's just like when I walk into, uh, I, I walk into a big restaurant. My eyes are always looking at how they built it. Right. I look at the corners. I look at the ceilings. I look at the, the buildings. I, you know, I look at every, I go to the bathroom and I look at the, the latch on the doors. L- Leo was that way. When I got my first Rolls Royce, I, I got every book in a Rolls Royce that I could think of. And about Every nut and bolt, how many threads, everything about a rules. I got Wilbur, every book you could dream of. <laughs> and, and it has such an incredible, incredible story. And I had to have a rules right. And I couldn't afford it. But I made friends with the owner of the company. And when he had this beautiful, it was in 1967, this Rolls Royce, Silver Shadow. It was the only model that they made that had the pull down, uh, tables. Uh, in the back of the seat, made out of wood, and from uh, in Yugoslavia, and and the tree was cut down the center, so that the left part of the car grain matched the right side of the car grain, <laughs> and it's the only year that they put those uh, picnic trays. We'll call them. They could be writing tablets or picnic trays, but they had an incredible hinge. 
that was so beautifully chrome and chrome plating and everything like that. I'm into that. You know how when I worked at Hughes Aircraft, I learned how to do plating, and I was in in metallurgy and uh, used to uh, work in induction brazing and stuff like that. And they had a hit that was so it was like plating you would use on a boat. <laughs> where you where you where you you put the acid first you put you put the copper plating on it and you brush the you polish the copper plating and then you dip it in nickel and the nickel is what comes on top of that and you brush polish that and then you put chrome flashing on top of that and, and with the bumpers today they only have one thing on it just a, a chrome flashing so when the when the, you go through that, it's just steel, and that's why it rusts. So that's the way it should be chrome, the way I just explained it. Well, this hinge had that chrome on it. It looked like it was three inches deep, and but it was the nickel and the copper that made it that way. Well, Leo, Fender, I was so proud of my car when I was able to get it, and I made payments on it, and the whole complete work. Uh, he, I wanted to show him the rope. So he got in the back seat and he pulled down the picnic tray and he spent a whole half an hour calling Freddie over, the number, his number, number one guy from Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the one who, uh, perfected the Telecaster and I'm the one who perfected the Stratocaster. Right. So, because that's when he handed it to me. He said, I made this, tell me what you think. Well, anyway, that's another story, but I won't go because I got to go and do something with Lana. But he never cared about the rest of the car. <laughs> he he just sat there and kept going, uh, Freddie, come here quick, Freddie. Look at how they made this hinge. <laughs> the hinge. He was the hinge. The hinge of the train, and he would open and close it. Open and close it. He go, look at this hinge. How it interlocks itself and does this. Or look at this. I died, never died. But he spent, you know, a lot of his time making, designing the inside of boats because he loved. He had a Matthews and also Stevens, and they were the Rolls Royce of boats. And uh, but he wanted to make in those days the cheaper boats. Uh, they didn't make the holes really good, and they would make the insides look really pretty, so the wives would uh, go along with their husbands for buying it. <laughs> so, you know, look at the curtains. Oh, look at how this nice looks. You know, stuff like that. But uh, he loved designing, you know, the interiors for boats, and because I had a boat, and, uh, and I guess that's another reason why we set it off. And I used to sit in his living room on the floor and listen to. Uh, 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 Marty Robbins and, you know, and, uh, you know, that's what we used to do. And his wife <laughs> told me, she says, Leo would come home every day and she goes, you know, and all the thousands and thousands of players, guitar players and people, amplifier people that he's done things for. She says, I only used to just hear one, one, one name. And it was always Dick Dale this, Dick Dale that, Dick Dale this, <laughs> Dick Dale that. And, uh, that's how we just designed that stuff because Freddie brought him into the concert to 4,000 people I was doing at the Rendezvous Ballroom and, and Leo just said, now, Freddie, now I know what Dick's trying to tell me, back to the drawing board. <laughs> and then 
And then he called me up around three in the morning. He says, I got it. I got it. And going from a 15, like a 15 to 21 amplifier, uh, I mean, uh, watt output transformer, he, he designed the first 85 watt output transformer peaking a hundred watts. And that was like going from a bicycle to the, to a Ferrari. To <laughs> yeah. And then, and then when I wanted it and we had to design the speaker and we went and did that and we got to do all that. I wanted two speakers, so we had to change the ohms from the output transformer. So he rewound it and redid it, and he created the first 100-watt output transformer taking 180 watts, 180 watts. Wow. So, so that was the, the beginning of uh, making people's ears bleed. <laughs> and that, that's why they call me the father of heavy metal. You, and they used to say I used telephone wires on my guitar neck, you know. Because <laughs> everybody played on, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten gauge strings, and my string started with sixteen gauge, uh, <laughs> eighteen gauge, twenty gauge, thirty nine gauge, forty nine gauge, and sixty gauge. Wow! And that's why my fingers hurt. That's why I make faces when I play. <laughs> I tell people it's no show business, it's just pain. <laughs> And it really is. It really, really is. But the older you get, the less feet there to protect it. Yeah. Yeah. And it hurts. It really, really hurts. Yeah. So, and I cheat all the different things I do, you know, with my fingers to, you know, not not torture them so much. Right. So, other than that, yeah, you got any questions? I think that's good. I'll let, I know I've taken up a lot of your time, but I'm going to try to make it out to a show in uh, Napa next, or I guess it's in two weeks. So. Oh, yeah, that's going to be exciting, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, that's going to be really neat because uh, I, I played, I think I played at the same place about 20 years ago. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm not sure, but I did play at a big winery. And they got mad at me because they said I stole the sign that was out front saying Dick Dale. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. I, uh, as I say, I, I never like to do interviews because of the way they take things and they say them. Right. But when someone has a... Uh, you 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 got the warp shields down, you know, from uh, <laughs> Star <Captain> Trek. Kirk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I watch that every day. I just <laughs> anyway, because I love to watch his method acting. You know, yeah. <laughs> and we just crack up. But it, I I just love the starship. You know, but anyway, um, you kind of broke down my shields because of <laughs> your um your, your demeanor. Oh. <laughs> and and you cannot you cannot disguise uh, somebody's demeanor at uh, yeah. just like just like a pool player and I'm, which I've been all my life and you can always tell a guy whether he's a shooter or not <laughs> by, by by his stroke right like the way he strokes no matter how many ways he misses the ball on purpose <laughs> he, uh, he has the stroke in 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 emblazoned in, in his way of right. muscle memory and muscle memory. <laughs> so, but so when a person has a great demeanor within themselves, um, it's just with your laugh. Just your laugh tells a lot about you. Oh, I never knew that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it uh, 
it, it's a caring, C-A-R-I-N-G. It's a caring laugh. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's a, I mean that you're, you're truthful. Yeah. You're, you're truthful. And you don't, you, you don't have a facade. No. <laughs> you know what I, what I mean? Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. And I can talk to somebody and in one sentence, a word that they might say exposes them. Because I've had books on everything on how people uh, tell a person by how they dot their eyes, tell a person by what they wear, tell a person by how they walk, how they hold their hands, hmm. how they clench their hands. Uh, even when they're in court, they're told not to put your hand to your face, not to do this, not to do that, not to do this, because <laughs> it's, it's a sign of guilt. Yeah. Interesting. You look directly, keep your hands open. Don't cross your legs. People who you're talking to, did you ever see people fold their arms when you talk to them? Yeah. Well, that's a, a, a thing of defiance. Yeah. Of stating that, uh, talk all you want. I'm not going to listen. And and if you see a person sit down in the chair and cross their legs, that's also a sign of of, of a barrier. But if you see a person sit down with open hands and legs just normal, straight out, right, they're there to listen to you. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of things. Watch out for people that dot their eyes <laughs> with uh, with, a, with a circle. That that means. That, have you ever seen that? I've I've never heard of that that being something to look. No, I, I mean, have you ever seen uh, an eye dotted with a circle? Yeah. You know what that means? No. It means look at me. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. And it's the kind of a things that they are more, more opposed. They'll sign their name like you can't even read it. <laughs> and stuff like that. It's just flamboyousness and stuff like that within themselves. Hmm. But uh, you see people write with handwriting that go backwards, slanting backwards. Mm. Yeah. And then uh, uh, writing that straight up and down, like a building. Right. And then forward, slanting forward. Uh-huh. Yeah, the people with the writing that's going backwards are submissive. They're very subservient, submissive. Hmm. And the people who are straight up and down with their writing, they're stock, hold, hard, and firm about their convictions. Hmm. And the people who write with a slanting forwardness, they are people who are really go-getters. Hmm. They'll they'll go forward. They reach forward. And 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 the the people who write very very clearly, like every syllable has been rounded, like a zero. Uh huh. Everything is, is very neat. That that means their their character is that way. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I used to have to write zeros. I was promised to be a good boy a hundred times <laughs> on the blackboard every day in school. So Lots of O's. See, when people see me write, they say, "My, you have very nice handwriting." <laughs> but but then you see like doctors and attorneys look at their handwriting. Look at their handwriting. Look at their signatures. Yeah, it, it, it looks like an an ant had a pencil and was running <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> and and they killed. They're they're the most uh, 
kill themselves in flying aircraft <laughs> because they are they're in always in a hurry huh. when they do things because going from patient to patient to patient to patient to patient right right and they have to write and write and write and write and write well that builds that character that way then they get in a bonanza aircraft which will kill you before you even know it will <laughs> and uh, and and because of the design of the plane and you must be knowing what you're doing and they'll get in one of those things and they'll try to if it's foggy they'll try to fly underneath the fog and go through the mountain passes and they fly into what we call a granite cloud <laughs> the, mountain, the mountain and that's because they're very very impetuous hmm. so s- slow down yeah you know slow down. And that's why I try to tell Lana, you know, go to sleep for Christ's sake. <laughs> you know, so don't let these people bother you so much because they're ignorant. Right. You know, the lack of knowledge of being a good person. You know, that that's that. Yeah. That poor kid. I told her what she was going to be in for when she wanted to take the job <laughs> out, of, out of my hands. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't put up with them when I was when I I had a, got a reputation unfortunately before I started learning how to really really control. They said, Don't book Dick Daly for maniac; he'll throw you over the table. <laughs> <laughs> but now she's got my reputation being very nice because I don't talk to none of them. Right. <laughs> so, well, God bless you and good health to you and. And stay the way you are, and don't allow anything to change your way oh, thank of, you. of of deciphering <laughs> which way to go. You know, you do. You've got a nice way of talking, and uh, you're very, very uh, pleasurable. Oh, thank you. That's, very, very. It's a real, pleasurable. real honor to talk to you, sir. Oh well, don't call me sir. I feel like I'm still in the air force. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I was always getting in trouble, and 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 I was always getting punished. And one time, I did a, I guess a heroic act where I was given a letter of commendation from the president, and and my mother and father were there because my mother and father would say, "My God, Jimmy, what did he do now?" You know, so <laughs> so they were sitting out there when I was being presented in at the base, and and my mother goes, "Oh, Jimmy." Okay, sounds good. Yeah. All right, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our program, Rock Talk. For the latest gig archives, articles, and features about popular music and concert events around the world, please visit us online at www.rocksubculture.com.
Um, I have a guy here. Um, you can't even say Moosebusters. 